Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Joanna Shoup's gilded age New York heroes are giving Regency Dukes a run for their money on bestseller lists, making the age of the Astors and the Vanderbilts hot with contemporary romance readers. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Joanna talks about feisty women, ostentatious wealth, dinner parties on horseback, and how so often truth is stranger than fiction. But before we get to Joanna, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Joanna's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Joanna. Hello there, Joanna, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored. Now, look, I always just like to start with this once upon a time question, because people always like to know, how did you get started? Was there a moment at some stage where you thought, I've just got to write fiction, even if you were already doing nonfiction, or was it something you always wanted to do? Well, I've always sort of been writing. Um, and I went to college on a journalism to get a journalism degree because I knew I wanted to be in, you know, the field of of writing somehow. And but I always read romance. I mean, I from a very very early age was re- reading, you know, things that I'm sure were completely inappropriate for me. Um, but you know, Johanna Lindsay and the Amanda Quicks and the Jane Ann Krantz, and that's sort of how I came into romance. Yes, and. Um, so when I graduated college, you know, I came home and I didn't have a job yet. And I was reading a lot of romance while I was job searching and trying to keep my stress level low. And my oldest sister said, you know, you should write one of those. You'd be really good at it. And it seems like it's pretty easy. You just come up with a plot and then you sit down and write it. And I was so stupid that I thought, yeah. That sounds pretty easy. I could totally do that. Um, So I was waiting tables at the time, and I would come home at like one o'clock in the morning, and I would write until four or five, go to sleep, you know, get up at noon and do it all over again. Um, So by the, you know, it was a couple months, and then I I had a book. So I let some people read it, and... I was encouraged by the feedback. That book will never, ever be published. It, you know, it was a practice. Mm-hmm. But I was really encouraged by the feedback that I got. And my s- oldest sister, who's the one that tried to get me to do it, said, I don't know where you came up with half the stuff that you thought of in this book. It's really impressive. And that sort of stuck with me. And then I went off and I got a job in marketing and advertising and real life kind of took over for a little while. But when I met my husband, um, he encouraged me to dig it out and try and polish it up and and get it published. And that was really the catalyst for me to sort of throw me back into romance writing. 
And that's just lovely that a husband would be so encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> yes. I'm, and I'm lucky because he also, he's has a lot of writing in his background and he was an editor for a little while. So he will also edit stuff for me if I want him to, and he'll brainstorm stuff with me. And um, he answers all of my, my questions on technique and formatting and all that stuff. Sure. Now you mentioned that it was romance. Was it historical romance? I kind of bounced around, but really in those days, I mean, that was kind of the heyday of, of historical romance. So yeah, I read all of, um, Mostly historical, some contemporary, but mostly historical. Oh, but this first book that you did, was that a regency? It was. Uh, he was a naval captain. Uh, I don't remember much else about the plot, but yes, it was a regency. Stephanie Lawrence was great in that space. I don't know if she's still publishing today, actually. I meant to have a look, but she was wonderful in the regency space um, it, it, a few, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago. Mm. Yes, and I believe she does still publish, yes. I must look her up again because actually one of the little things that I'm kind of working by is a quote she had once for aspiring writers. Don't expect to get anywhere unless you've got at least six books out and possibly as many as 12. <laughs> oh, wow. That's da- <laughs> that is daunting, <laughs> but, I, you know, I can see the wisdom in that. Yeah, yeah. So the Regency England, was that the first one you actually got published? Tell us about your first book that got published. So yeah, I I sort of had a game plan when I came to publishing. I knew that Regency books dominate romance. Um, when I really was trying to do this seriously, this was 2008, 2009. So, you know, we're talking... Um, Regency really had a stranglehold, and it still really does on the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that I didn't want to stay in Regency, but I knew that in order to get published in historical, that really I would have to start in Regency. And then I found a publisher who was willing to take a gamble on me, and that's just what happened. The first series was. Um, set in in Regency England. It was called Wicked Deceptions. And it did well enough that when I wanted to switch out of the Regency, my publisher at the time said, sure, let's give it a try. That's great because that's where we're going. I think at least the last two series have been set in Gilded Age New York, um, haven't they? Yes. And that's the period in New York, probably just in the early years of the 20th century, the early 1900s, maybe going back to the late 19th century a little bit. Right, it's from the 1870s and continues on just around the turn of the century. And it's, you know, it's the era, it's also called the progressive era. It's the time of big business and big invention. And a lot of the immigration comes over from Europe into the United States. Um, It's a period of great upheaval and change and progress uh, and it's always fascinated me. So, yeah, that's the, my last. I have three series now set in Gilded Age New York. Right. I'm. I was aware of the Knickerbockers and your new one, the Uptown Girls. Um, they're all very much business dominated, and it's it's also the period of the robber barons, as they're called, isn't it? Correct. Yeah. So you've got you know J.P. Morgan and the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Um, 
it's, you know, when all the railroads were built in this country. And so it's the era really of big business and, and all of those people just became stupid, stupid wealthy. I mean, the amount of money is just staggering. And so you get big mansions and you get, you know, um, the unfair labor practices and we start to see strikes and unions and the really the push pull between business and labor. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating period to write in, but why did it have an attraction for you as an author? You're almost almost trying to plow a new field in a different setting from the one that's the most popular one. What made you decide to take that on? I know, st- stupidity, is that like, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I So I grew up reading Edith Wharton. Oh, yes. I did not read Jane Austen until I was like in my 30s. So I don't really have this, you know, romanticized view of England like so many um, of my romance contemporaries, especially historical. You know, they tend to all be, you know, fanatical about Jane Austen. But I read her so late that it just didn't leave a mark on me like Edith Wharton did, which is who I was reading in my teens. Um, I loved the class, the, the, you know, the class wars, the... um, social uh, upheaval that Wharton depicts. And um, that to me was so fascinating. And then I also have this uh, connection to Ellis Island, which was the place where all the European immigrants came when they first arrived in the United States. It was the processing center. And my ancestors actually on my dad's side came over from Italy around the turn of the century. So I've always felt uh, a personal connection both to New York, to the concept of, you know, this country being a melting pot. And that for me was, was one of the reasons why I wanted to write in this particular time period. You've also made a name for yourself doing some great, unusually dramatic setups. And, and the, there's one online for people who want to read it, one of the Knickerbocker series, where you have this fantastic opening scene where this woman grabs an obviously wealthy man and pretends to be his wife. And the whole scene is done so brilliantly. You think, oh man, you can just see it all happening and yet it's so far-fetched, yet you believe in it. And I think you do that over and over. Um, You've made that a mark of your work as well, haven't you? I do try. I mean, my whole goal in writing no matter really what I'm doing, is to give the reader something they haven't seen before. Um, I read voraciously. I read all the time. I probably read four to five books a week. So I know, and that's you know primarily romance, so I sort of have a good idea of what's out there. And I do try to give readers something they haven't seen before or try to keep it interesting. Um, and that book, Tycoon, yeah, I mean, I needed her... I needed them on the train together because it's, if you've ever seen the movie Strangers on a Train, uh, which is the Alfred Hitchcock movie, that was what I was doing. I I was doing Strangers on a Train, but the romance version of that. So I needed them together on the train and that scene just, you know, kind of wrote itself. But I do, I I try to start the the book off with something unusual happening. Um, One of my books starts with, an actual dinner party on horseback, 
which actually happened in the Gilded Age. There was an actual dinner party on horseback. They drank wine out of saddlebags. They had trays that were set up on the the saddle. I mean, and they they dined on horseback. That and I thought, how could I not use that? Yeah, it is funny how sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there are so many things that you just, I, I couldn't make them up if I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. And also your woman, this this phrase that we've been using a lot in the last few years about of agency, women having agency, and your women all a very driven woman. They're achieving something. They aren't going to just sit there and wait for the world to give them their lives. Um, is that what women in, in that period in New York were like? Uh, yes. Um, I. We have to remember that in the, in the 19th century, prior to the Gilded Age, women, your whole future would have been what you could see around you. You would have lived on a farm with your family you would have been married off to another local, you know, farmer or, um, you know, somebody local, and you would have stayed local. But in the Gilded Age, with the rise of department stores, um, office, you know, office uh, buildings, and women, women could come into the city and actually get a job. They could be secretaries. They found work in department stores, writers. I mean, we just see this explosion of job opportunities for women that we've never seen before. So they were able to move into the cities. There were there was public transportation. There was also the bicycle, which allowed women the freedom to move around. Um, and they were able to, to have their own income to live alone. I mean, we take those things for granted, but in the Gilded Age, that was revolutionary. And we see women pushing forward in the Gilded Age. Um, You know, look at Victoria Woodhull, who was the first woman to run for president um, in the 1870s. She's the first, her and her sister opened the first female-led brokerage firm on Wall Street. Um, You know, I just happened to learn last week, that the first person to ride in a barrel over Niagara Falls and survive was a woman. She was a school teacher. She was 63 years old. And that was in like 1901. So, you know, even Alva Vanderbilt, who was a social maven of the time, uh, once she divorced her husband, becomes a suffragette and becomes progressive and is really lobbying for women's rights. So I think New York, you know, the cities are really important in the Gilded Age. You've got New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco. Those places are critical because we're seeing just all these women, young girls, move into the cities and be able to thrive in a way that they've never, ever been able to do before. Just look, mentioning a couple of the books in your most recent series, The Rogue of Fifth Avenue features Mamie Green, and the one that you've got, got coming out soon features her sister Florence, and both of those heroines are very much in the mould that you've just been discussing. Mamie um, very um, cheekily tries to gambles and then uses the, uh, the proceeds to 
support her charity work because her father wouldn't approve if she did that, you know, with his with his knowledge. And Florence also has got her own secret thing going on there. Both of them very much um, in quiet rebellion against their father, aren't they? Right. I mean, they, you know, have been raised in a certain way. They're of a wealthy family. They live very far uptown. Um, very sheltered, but all the action is happening downtown. Um, and it was actually very common in the Gilded Age for wealthy citizens who lived uptown to take tours of downtown, of, you know, and go to gambling um, saloons and go to dance halls and go to opium dens and go to the tenements to see how, you know, the other end of New York City really lived. And um, I wanted to write a series where these three girls are just so tempted by what's going on downtown, you know, outside their little bubble. Um, And then they, of course, all fall in love with men from the wrong side of the tracks. (laughs) Frank Tripp, the one in, in the Rogue of New Fifth Avenue, Frank Tripp, the lawyer that Mamie has a relationship with, is a great character as well because he's very much from the wrong side of the tracks, but he's made good in in the the new world, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean he is. He's like the the fixer, you know. Um, he's a wealthy lawyer, you know, a, a wealthy lawyer who represents other wealthy men to sort of make all their problems go away, and he's you know, based on an, an amalgamation of of uh, real lawyers of the time who existed that did this kind of thing. And, uh, but yeah, he comes from very humble beginnings, but he's ashamed of it and he's changed his name and become someone else, which, you know, with the lack of the internet um, back then, I think would have been very easy. Yeah. And, you know, there's a thought that um, script guru Robert McKee has said that to make a, a period a periodic thing popular with contemporary readers, it has to have some resonance. Now, everything that you've been telling us about the Golden Age and about women's blossoming during that period m- makes it understandable why modern readers would love would love these stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I mean, some things change, but some things remain the same. And in writing... The Gilded Age, especially in the last few years in the political climate in our in our country, it's very clear that you know greed, corruption, uh, you know political struggles, um, women and other marginalized groups, you know fighting for representation and uh, fighting for their rights. I mean, it just sadly never goes away. Some of those things, mm. so. Mm-hmm. It's really been, I mean, it's just a playbook that this country has seen before and it doesn't end well. Yeah, yeah. Is there a lot of um, original material that you can draw on for for your research? Yes, and that's, I mean, that's one of the really the great things about writing the, this era is there's even movies. I mean, Thomas Edison invents the move the you know, the movies in the Gilded Age. So you're able to even find street scenes um, and there's all the the clothing that still exists. And um, also newspapers really come into their own in the Gilded Age. So there's just tons of original source materials to look at and pull from. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
moving away perhaps from talking about the individual books to your wider career, you mentioned that you had a beginning in marketing and and uh, public relations before you got into full-time writing. And it's obvious from the way you've tackled your writing career that you had a very good marketing strategy there. How have those influences helped your writing, do you think? Um, I think it's helped me look at, I mean, one thing that I do even now is I will look at sort of what people like about what they're reading. So I will get the books that everyone's talking about. And then I will look in, in Kindle, it makes it really easy to look at passages that readers are highlighting. So I will look you know, not only in my own books to see what readers have highlighted, but I'll look in popular books to see, okay, what, what are readers, what's really resonating with them? What, you know, and what, how can I implement that same idea in my stories? And then I, it's invariably in my own books, when I check the bookmarks, it's usually things that I would never have guessed in a million years that would resonate with readers. So it's always really interesting to sort of um, after the fact, you know, long after the books have been out to, to kind of go back and look and see what readers have liked. Can you think of an example of something that you wouldn't have guessed people like that they do like? Usually it's, um, it's like witty dialogue, um, which I normally, you know, that, that makes sense. Cause if it makes you laugh or it makes you, you know, um, but a lot of times it's some kind of heartfelt, um, normally it's just something I have tossed in there, not really even planning to have, um, to have a reaction for. And then I'm just surprised that, oh, okay, well, I should have expected a reaction because it's, you know, it's some emotional, you know, revelation on the part of one of the characters. Yeah. So you're giving them a little surprise somewhere. Yeah, I'm trying to. Um, and, and usually it, it's um, sometimes not, it's a surprise for me. It's not even, sometimes it's not something I've even planned, but that's probably a little bit of my marketing and advertising brain that wants to analyze why people like what they like. Yes, yes. Look, if there's one thing you've done more than any other that's helped with your writing career, what would you say that one thing was? Probably starting something new. I mean, starting something memorable, not being afraid to, um, you know, step outside the established box of of what um, what's being published. When I first pitched the Gilded Age series to, to my old publisher, Kensington, um, I remember my editor tweeting, you know, if I told you a book was set, you know, in this era, you know, would you know what I was talking about? I mean, so they didn't even really know what to call it or how to market it or, um, and we tried a bunch of different things with the covers and some worked and some didn't and sales, you know, especially on the first book, the first full-length paperback, which was Magnate, um, you know, sales just kind of threw up their hands and said, we, just, we don't know what, is it a romance? Is it a mystery? Like, what is happening in this book? So 
Then for the second cover, we went to a man and a woman so that it would be clear that it was a romance, but they felt like it was too dark. So then for the third cover, they wanted something bright. So there was a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, testing to see what, what readers would, would like. Yeah. Yeah. And have you got other writers who are now following in your footsteps? Are there other people working in the same Gilded Age New York um, space? Maya Rodale is actually writing. Um, she has written one full Gilded Age series, um, and I, I don't. I hope she sticks with it to do another series. Um, there is Felicia Grossman, who writes wonderful. Um, Jewish characters in Gilded Age, and they're mostly set in Philadelphia. Um, and I know there are others. I just, I'm drawing a blank, but it seems like, you know, slowly but surely, um, it it might become a real trend. Yes, yes. You'll be able to take the credit if it does. <laughs> Well, I mean, the readers will be able to take the credit if if it does, because that means that they've they've really liked um, how we've been able to to show them something different. Great, yes. What sort of comment do you get from them in that regard? You know, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, most readers will say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm so tired of Dukes and and uh, Regency books that I'm so glad you're doing this. It's it's so different, and I really like it. And you know, it's different, but yet familiar. Um, I have had some readers tell me they won't read anything set in American history because they can't romanticize our history the way that they can romanticize England's history, which is astounding to me, really. Um, We don't, you know, in America, we study, you know, history from starting in kindergarten, but whose history are you learning? I mean, what are you, what's in the textbooks that you are learning from? Um, it's just such a limited scope to me that I'm always, you know, I'm always surprised when somebody thinks that they know everything about American history that there is to know. Mm, yes, particularly as in, in the mid-century, mid-20th century, the teaching of history was still very much about institutions and and things that men made decisions about. It's only in the last 20 years or so that you've really started to get history expanding into the more social um, history and and women's history, isn't it? Right, correct. So a lot of the history that's been taught has been very much from the point of view of the people running the show rather than (laughs) the ones who are trying to get some um, chance to, to get their foot in the door. Yes, that's, I mean, it's absolutely true. Mm. Absolutely Mm. true. Look, turning to Joanna as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, and you say that you read, you must be binge reading to write, to read five a week. Um, Who are you reading at the moment and who would you like to recommend to our listeners? Yes, let's, let's talk books. Um, So because I write historical, I tend to read more contemporary romance because it's just, I don't want my brain cluttered with, you know, someone else's historical tone. So I tend to, when I'm drafting a novel, I tend to read more 
contemporary authors, and I usually end up a little bit more on the spicy end, um, like Helena Hunting, Sierra Simone, Cresley Cole, Naima Simone, L. Kennedy. Those um, those are contemporary authors that I just automatically buy and read. Um, for historicals, you know, I read Sarah McLean and Lisa Klepus and Alyssa Cole and KJ Charles. Uh, those are some of my historical favorites. Great. Um, but if you want to talk about series books, like series, um, some series recommendations. Yes. Um, I don't know if you've read the the Winston Brothers series by Penny Reed. No. So that's a contemporary series, and it's set in Appalachia, and I believe it's Tennessee. Um, it is a series of seven siblings, I believe, seven or eight siblings, and of course they each get a happily ever after. And Penny, these books are um, a little fluffy. They're not spicy or racy, but they are really big on like the family dynamic and humor and she's really clever at taking a hero and a heroine that at face value you would think oh, no way those two not work you know she's made you just you can't stop reading you're just breathless turning the pages because you're so invested in these two um you know getting a happily ever after yeah, that sounds really fun. So that's that's it's a, and it's almost uh, almost done. I think the eighth book is coming out uh, next week, and I can't wait. <laughs> that sounds great. Another series that I really love is Alexa Martin's Playbook series. Um, it's set in the world of the National Football League here in America because Alexa is married to a former football player. And uh, it's set with the uh, it's set in the world of the National Football League and the wives and the girlfriends, the wags they're called, of the football players, and they're delightful. I mean, she is funny, and they're hot, and no one else could write these books. I don't think other than Alexa because she's got such a unique perspective on football and you know uh the players and what it's like to really be a wife and a girlfriend of a football player and i think the third one in the series is coming out in a few weeks and those that's a series that i i really enjoy wonderful that's they all sound great to look for <laughs> the other series that is just getting underway that i'm also excited about is um wicked villains by katie robert she has just released the second book in the series, which is called Learn My Lesson. And the first book was called Desperate Measures. And what she's done is she's taken the Disney villains and given them their own stories. So she's pairing the Disney villains together um, with some of the Disney heroines and heroes and given them their own romance stories, which I think is so clever and so fun. The first book was Jafar and Jasmine from Aladdin. Yeah. Um, and that was that was Desperate Measures. And the second book is Learn My Lesson, which is Hades, Meg, and Hercules. So 
that I it's the series is just crack. I love it. I I, I need every book now. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's another one that I really like. Sounds great. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together, circling around and looking back over your career at this point. If you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd change? I might slow down. I mean, I feel like I have been going full tilt since I got into this in like, you know, 2011, 2012. And um, it's, you know, a lot. I mean, I have kids, I have a husband, I coach my daughter's softball team. Um, I have a job beyond writing. So it's just, it's a lot. Um, so I probably would try to, um, and also, you know, slowing down allows you to enjoy the moment a little bit more and enjoy some of the, you know, um, the fun that I've had along the way. So yeah, I would probably slow down. Are you able to do that now? You you obviously are well established now. Are you able to just sit back and enjoy the ride a little bit more now? I'm trying. <laughs> I'm I'm trying. That's my goal for 2020. And how many books? I know that's a terrible question to ask. How many books a year do you write? But do you write more than one book a year? Perhaps that's a better way to put it. It has depended on the year, actually. Um, in some years, I have written novellas that sort of came out of, you know, came out of nowhere. Um, I did an anthology last year with uh, Sarah McLean, Tessa Dare, and Sophie Jordan called How the Dukes Stole Christmas. And so normally I write two books a year, but because, you know, a novella sort of came out of nowhere, then it was, you know, two books plus a novella. So it depends on the year, but pretty much it's two books a year. I, yeah, I think now I have two 11 books in print. Well, you certainly have got a very strong platform now to be able to just sit back a little and enjoy it, I think. I, I hope so. <laughs> so what is next? You mentioned perhaps doing that as part of your goals for the next 12 months, but what other works in progress do you have? So my next proposal that I'm working on for my publisher is a Gilded Age baseball series. Oh. Um, a lot of people don't realize that New York is where baseball, where baseball came to be. So I, it's just fascinating, you know, the, the start of baseball, it was played by men and women and how the rules evolved and the teams evolved and it all sort of happens in the Gilded Age. So that's what I'm, what I'm most looking forward to. That's fantastic. So the Uptown Girls series, have you finished book three in that? I have. Um, it has been turned into my editor, but I haven't done any of the, you know, the, the edits, the developmental or the copy edits on it, right. but it's drafted. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Now, do you enjoy interacting with your readers? And if so, where can they find you online? I love interacting with readers. Um, I actually was at a reader event last weekend and I, I said it's writing is so lonely and so solitary that it's so nice to actually get out and talk to readers. Um, but I'm, I'm everywhere online. Um, my website is joannashoop.com. I'm on Facebook as Joanna Shoop author. Um, I'm on Twitter as at Joanna Shoop. I have a, um, I have two Facebook reader groups. Uh, one is called the League of Extraordinary Historical Romance Authors that has a bunch of other 
um, romance authors. And then I have my own Facebook group called The Gilded Lilies. Oh, fantastic. I must have a look online for those. That sounds really fun. It is. It's nice. It's it's nice to hear from readers and just take a break from writing and be social. That's just wonderful, Joannis. Look, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure that readers are going to have a, have a look and find your books and we'll be delighted. We'll look forward to the baseball series. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.